Hey, Christ community, I am so glad you are not here. Uh, just kidding, I really wish you were here. But it is a little bit weird uh, speaking to an empty room. There are a few people here, some worship team members, and so I'm glad of that. But I know that so many of you are watching this in your living room or with your small group, and that makes me grateful for this opportunity to be with you and engage with you as a church family. So COVID-19 most of us, I hadn't even heard that term uh, a few weeks ago, but now it is causing an impact beyond what any of us could have ever imagined. Now, I'm sure you've heard all the health warnings and precautionary measures, so I'm not going to say anything about that. Here, here's what I want to say to us. This crisis is an amazing opportunity for us. It is an amazing opportunity for us to trust God to not let fear and panic rule our lives, but to trust our good shepherd. Let's be people of prayer rather than people of panic. You know, in fact, I wonder what would happen in our hearts if we spend as much time in prayer as we spend pouring over the, la the latest news updates. You know, th this is also an amazing opportunity for us to rise to the occasion and be the family that God calls us to be, to love each other really well. Even though we are not gathering as a large group today, let's stay connected to the people around us. Let's reach, reach out and help with, with groceries or meals, even sharing our toilet paper. Wow, huge sacrifice. Uh, and, and, and let's be people, um, let's let people know if we have needs. If we have need of something, let's other people know that. If we have need of help or, or prayer. In my email last Friday, we put a link in for a new Christ Community Facebook group that we've created to connect needs in our body with people in our body who could meet that need. And so let's all get on there and sign up for that and be available to help others. Now, this crisis is also an amazing opportunity for us to be generous. The, the economic impact of this virus on nearly every sector of our society is huge. Many of you are worried about your job, your, your future, your savings. I totally understand that because I feel it as well. What will be the impact on our church financially? But this is no time to shrink back. It is a time to trust God, even with our finances. So many of you are so generous toward this church, and I would just ask you to continue that so that the ministry of Christ community can continue to impact people for Christ. We don't know how long we will, be, we will not be meeting publicly. We don't know. We're going to kind of just make a week-by-week -week decision on that. But, but if you are able, so if you are able to give online or mail in your donation or drop it by, that would be so helpful. Hey, church we're going to get through this together. We are going to get through this together. I'm excited about our faith and love rising to meet the challenge before us because Jesus is worthy of that. So let me pray for our church and for this message that, that I'm going to be sharing. So Jesus, we thank you that you are with us in the midst of all that's going on. And we pray that our faith and our love would rise to the occasion that we would be the family that you're calling us to be. We would love others well, and we would trust you well. So we just pray peace upon each heart right now, all of us. And God, we ask you as well right now just to speak to our hearts. 
this message, that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight and that you would speak to each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are starting a new teaching series about the Bible, about how we approach the Bible. Even though we all know that the Bible is a crucial part of our Christian faith, the reality is more and more Christians are, are personally disengaging from the Bible. Now, part of this is just the overall busyness of our culture and the digital distractions that seem to fill every moment. Although right now, uh, most of us will have a lot more time to read the Bible uh, since we're not watching March Madness uh, and many other things. Uh, but, but I actually believe the problem is deeper than just a busyness issue. What we're seeing today is actually an erosion of trust in the Bible. More and more Christians, especially young people, are disengaging from the Bible. Many are leaving the faith because they can't seem to reconcile some of the things in the Bible with their understanding of reality, their understanding of life and, and goodness. There has been a huge shift over the past 30 years since when I started in ministry and the, the last the, you know, recent 30 years. I mean, 30 years ago, people would read about or hear a, a message about Joshua's conquest of Jericho in Joshua chapter 3, and they would celebrate God's faithfulness and power. Today, People read that story and think, that sounds like genocide. Wiping out an entire village with women and children. How is that good? Well, what do you do with passages where polygamy and slavery seem to be encouraged? Or where, where, where there are certain laws that seem to view women as less valuable than men? What, what, what do you do when certain scientific discoveries seem to contradict what you thought the Bible teaches? in terms of the age of the earth or some other topic like that? What do you do when you feel like certain passages in the Bible have been used by some Christians to actually promote hatred? I mean, for, for an increasing number of Christians, these kinds of things can cause them to conclude that they can no longer trust this Bible, so they disengage from it. And what breaks my heart is that many of them abandon Christianity completely because they can't seem to reconcile their heart and mind with these things that they see in Scripture. But what if the problem was not the Bible? What if the problem is how we are approaching the Bible? See, I feel like we need a fresh look at this thing called the Bible. Now, let me be clear. I believe, and we as a church believe, that the Bible is God's inspired, authoritative word to us. Absolutely. But I'm not sure we have fully understand, understood what these terms actually mean and how they impact the way we engage in and think about Scripture, which can result in us inadvertently building a proverbial house of cards where one legitimate question or apparent contradiction in the Bible causes people's entire faith to shatter. My heart for us in this series is to love this book, to love it with all of its complexity and difficulty and beauty and mystery, and to have our lives transformed as we engage in it. Okay, so where, where do we start? How do we learn about how to, or relearn about how to think about and engage in the scriptures in such a way that our love and trust in the Bible actually grows? Well, there, there, there's a very clear way to do this, and that is by following the example 
of Jesus. In the midst of all of our you know, questions and difficulties in the Bible, it is, it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that Jesus loved the Bible. Now, his Bible would have been what we call the Old Testament, or as I heard someone um, recently refer to it as the original Testament. I like that um, because the New Testament hadn't yet been written. But Jesus loved the Bible. He quoted it. He memorized it. He based his teaching on it. He leaned on it in times of difficulty. He trusted it. So the fact that Jesus loved the Bible has a huge implication, has huge implications for those of us who desire to follow him. So I love how Andrew Wilson describes this in his little book entitled Unbreakable. He writes this, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. See, that, that's a really important point. Our faith ultimately rests on Jesus, the person of Jesus. It doesn't rest upon whether all of our questions about the Bible are answered. We are followers of a risen Messiah named Jesus who trusted the Bible as trustworthy, authoritative, a good thing. He loved the Bible. So as his followers, he invites us to do the same, but not in a way that creates this, this house of cards approach to scripture where our entire faith is shattered when we come across some difficult or confusing things in the Bible. No, Jesus invites us to love the Bible in a way that is life-giving and transformative. So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks in this series. Well, today, today we're going to look at a foundational statement made by Jesus about the Bible. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. This is Jesus' word to us. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. See, this gives us such a powerful picture of how Jesus viewed the Bible. He says here that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament. Rather, he came to fulfill it, to fulfill them. So what does it mean that Jesus fulfills it? Well, we find out actually a bit later after Jesus' resurrection when in Luke 24, he is walking along a road with two of his followers, but they don't recognize him. Um, and they're confused by the events that have just happened in Jerusalem regarding his crucifixion. So he starts to explain the meaning. He starts to explain the meaning of these events to them. Guess where he goes to do so? The Bible, his Bible, our Old Testament. So we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then later in the same chapter, he says to his disciples, everything must be fulfilled, same words in Matthew 5, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
What Jesus is referring to here is the entire Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings, which is how Jews often referred to their entire Bible, the, the, you know, their, the, that, that Testament, the Old Testament. They referred to it as the Tanakh, which comes from those three sections. So what Jesus is saying here is truly amazing. He is saying that everything in the Old Testament, the, the original Testament, everything points to him. Which, which, which is a profound statement that has huge ramifications for how we approach the Bible. What this means, what this means is that from Jesus' perspective, the entire Bible is actually telling one story. It is a unified story of God's activity, and Jesus is at the center of this story. This is one of the many things that makes the Bible such an amazing, amazing, unique, powerful library of writings. I mean, technically, speak, technically speaking, the Bible is not a book. It is a library. It is a library of books and writings that were written by several different authors over a period of several centuries in a variety of different cultures and languages and genres, including narrative and poetry and, and teaching. And yet it tells a unified story, a glorious story of God's interaction with humanity and his plan to bring healing and redemption to our world. See, this is how Jesus viewed his Bible, as a unified story with him at the center of the plot line. And we, we desperately need to approach the Bible in the same way. So why is this so important? Well, we're going to get there in, in just a few minutes. But before we do, I want to take a few minutes and share with you this overarching story of the Bible. I'm going to summarize the entire Bible in the next eight minutes or so. So if you need to get some chips or pop, popcorn, you can just hit pause. Uh, this is really important. Just come back because I don't want you to miss this. But the narrative flow of this one unified story naturally divides into six parts, like chapters in a book or, or acts in a play. Now, I got um, the titles for most of these sections from a teaching series done by uh, Bridgetown Church in Portland. So part one of this unified story of the Bible is creation. The kingdom begins. The first 10 words of the Bible, the first 10 words of the story lay out for us this all-important foundation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before we began, there was God. Our beginning starts from him. He is the king. He is the source of all things. And out of his loving pleasure, he chose to create the heavens and the earth. The sun, the earth, the moon, the stars, the mountains, the oceans, and all living things on land and sea are his handiwork. His creation. That's what's described in Genesis chapter 1. Now, unfortunately, this passage has become a battleground of sorts with people trying to project onto this ancient text modern day scientific thinking and, and methodology, which, in my opinion, has created significant confusion and unnecessary barriers between science and the Bible. I'm going to be talking more about that um, in the third week of this series. What the original author intended for us to focus on in this passage is God's creative activity. However God chose to do it, he created all things. 
All things have their source in him. And, and the pinnacle of his creative genius is human beings, who we are told in Genesis 1, we're told we are created in his image. And this, this is really important. We are given dominion. See, in other ancient creation accounts, the, like the Babylonian, the Babylonian account, for instance, the Babylonian God creates humans to be his slaves. He creates humans to be his slaves. But in the biblical creation account, the Bible's creation account, God the King creates humans to be his co-laborers. He lovingly entrusts this newly created kingdom into our hands to rule and to exercise leadership and dominion, to carry on his good purposes and heartbeat, co-ruling this creation with him. Part two, the fall. The kingdom rebels against the king. So God places Adam and Eve in this beautiful paradise, a garden, and he encourages them to enjoy everything in this garden except for one particular tree. They are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if they do, God tells them that the consequences of that will be spiritual death. Well, unfortunately, one day they gave in to temptation. They ate of the forbidden fruit, choosing to disobey their loving king and creator. And the immediate result was spiritual death, a removal from the goodness of the garden, and instead now being driven by shame. So within a few chapters, we see the impact of their choice on humanity as a whole, that there is now conflict and abuse and violence and wickedness and racism and sexual immorality. The kingdom God created has rebelled against its king, which leads to part three, Israel. The kingdom begins again. So in Genesis chapter 12, after 11 chapters of avarice and pride and immorality and conflict, God chooses a man named Abraham. God calls him out of his idolatrous family and he invites him into relationship with God. And he does so for a very specific purpose. Check this out. This is in Genesis 12. God, is saying, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, notice God's plan. He wants to bless all people on earth. He wants his kingdom to be established on earth, hearkening back to the blessing of the garden in Eden. No shame, no sin, relationships that are whole, work that is meaningful, co-laboring with God in his purposes in the world. And notice how Abraham plays into this. God is going to use Abraham to create a nation, the nation of Israel. And that nation is to become a conduit through which God blesses the entire world. So God enters into a relational agreement with the nation of Israel. This agreement was known as a covenant. And just like other covenants in that historical time period, this covenant had certain stipulations, certain laws to follow which God gave to his people, and they said, yes, we're in. They entered into a covenant with God, agreeing to worship him alone and follow his ways. So the rest of the Old Testament story is this vivid and often painful description of how Israel strays from God. 
by worshiping idols and their lives fall apart and God lovingly invites, he, he lovingly keeps calling them back to himself through the words of his prophets. But most of the kings of Israel don't follow God at all. And so eventually the nation of Israel ends up in captivity. The purposes God has for Israel don't seem to be happening. But throughout this story in the Old Testament, there, there are these glimpses, these recurring promises of a new king who will establish a new covenant, a covenant where our sins will be forgiven and God's presence will live in us, which leads to part four, Jesus. The king comes with his kingdom. So Jesus arrives on the scene and starts talking about how the kingdom of God is here. He, he starts teaching about the values of the kingdom, like lo loving your enemies and demonstrating humility and, and compassion. And then he starts doing miracles, miracles of healing and deliverance, directly confronting the kingdom of darkness. Jesus' purpose leads him to a cross where, the, where he takes upon himself all the shame and all the guilt and all the brokenness and rebellion that was unleashed in Genesis chapter 3, choosing to die in our place, a final sacrifice for our sins. And then he rose from the dead as king and lord over creation, which, which, which is amazing. But get this, just before he ascended into heaven, he gave his followers a glorious commission which leads to part five of the, biblical, of the Bible story. Church, the kingdom spreads to the world. So in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter two, the Holy Spirit of God is poured out upon Jesus' followers in fulfillment of a promise in the Old Testament. And they are given a commission to continue the ministry of Jesus, not just to, follow, not just to fellow Jews, but, but to the entire world. To the entire world, which as we saw earlier, was God's heart all along. I was, he was just going to use the nation of Israel to have this happen. But his heart all along was to bless the world. So the book of Acts describes how this movement begins. And then we see numerous letters in the New Testament from the apostles, of, you know, Paul and Peter and John. These letters to specific churches and leaders that contain practical insights into how to live out the story of Jesus. How do we live out this story of Jesus? How do, how, do, how, do, how do they follow Jesus in their culture? Which leads to the final section of God's story, part six, new creation. The king returns and restores. The final book of the Bible gives this very imagery-heavy, graphic picture of the final chapter where Jesus returns to earth as triumphant king and he brings the fullness of his kingdom. We are told in Revelation 21 that the new Jerusalem actually comes down from heaven to earth. Jesus will establish his glorious kingdom on earth bringing justice and restoration and healing to this broken planet. See that's the story of the Bible. That's the story of God's activity among humanity. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, the church, and the new creation. It is one unified story. So why, back to the question, why is it important? Why is it important that we see the unified story of the Bible? And what impact does this have on how we approach the Bible and how we understand the Bible. Well, there are two reasons that I want to highlight. 
First of all, understanding the Bible as one story helps to normalize our confusion. It helps to normalize our confusion. Let me explain what I mean. Let, let's say you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, and within the first several chapters of that book or the first half of the movie, things are happening that, you, that don't make any sense, right? I mean, a certain character is making a decision that you don't get. Like, what are you doing? Or, or a new character is introduced, or there are confusing things about the plot that you don't understand. This happens all the time in our house where I'm stopping to ask Raylene, hey, who is that person? Uh, what are they doing? Um, part of the reason is because I just fell asleep, uh, but actually just for a couple of minutes. But, but I think all of us would agree that this kind of confusion in the middle of a story is completely normal. This kind of confusion in the middle of a story is completely normal. In fact, in most stories, it's intentional so that the ending can come together and the pieces fit. But we don't see the pieces fit until the last chapter or the last few minutes of, of, of a movie. And the same thing is true of the Bible. There are a lot of things, there are lots of things in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that I don't understand. There, there's violence that seems to be sanctioned by God. There are laws, there are laws that seem so archaic or morally offensive to us in this day and age. And when, when we read passages like this, and we find ourselves really confused by them, we need to remember these things are early in the story. They are early in the story. It is okay to be confused. It's okay to admit we don't understand certain things that are going on. We're not yet to the end of the story when God promises to put all these pieces together. Now, please hear me. I'm not, I'm not encouraging us to gloss over Bible difficulties and, and, you know, pretend that they aren't there. No, no, no. I'm encouraging us to honestly acknowledge them, but to do so without insisting that it all make complete sense to us right now in our story. See, without insisting that we have to defend everything that happens in the Old Testament, now, we're going to unpack this more in the next few weeks. But I want to mention here a second reason why seeing the Bible as one story is so important. And that is to inspire hope. To inspire hope. Well, one thing that we often fail to realize is how unique the story of the Bible is compared to any other ancient literature. See, in the literature of the ancient world, th th there was no hope for the future. There was no underlying belief that things were going to get better, a future utopia that we can all look forward to. There was nothing like that in the, in the literature of the ancient world, in the worldview of the ancient world. There's nothing hopeful about the Babylonian or, or Greek mythologies, nothing, or, or the cyclical view of reality, of Eastern mysticism. But that's not true of the Bible. See, unlike any other ancient religious document, the Bible tells a story that is progressing toward a glorious climax. The Bible uniquely introduced into history, uniquely introduced into history this idea that the future could actually be better, that the future could be better, that evil could be vanquished. See, this is why we love Marvel movies and Star Wars. They connect with this longing for a hopeful future. A story of redemption in which good triumphs over evil. The Bible gives us that hope that we are part of a bigger story. A hope that history is moving toward a glorious climax where sex trafficking will end. 
where wars and genocide and coronaviruses and cancer will no longer happen, where, where all things will be made right. I mean, what an amazing hope this is, that the story is not done. The story is not over. We need this hope. I need this hope. Two weeks ago, I was sitting at the funeral of a beautiful young woman in our church named Judith who was five months pregnant and whose future was filled with so much joy and promise. She, she was killed in a rollover car accident three weeks ago. I, I have no words for that. I have no words for that. I have no answers to all of our questions and confusion and grief in the aftermath of a horrible tragedy like that. But, but here's what I do have, and you do as well. We have this amazing story given to us in the Bible, a story that Jesus himself attested to and gave his life for, a story that reminds us that this is not our ultimate home and that God is not done writing his story. One day, all things will be restored. There will be no more sickness or crying or grieving or loss because Jesus the King will be completely and finally in charge and will have restored all things to God's good intention. See, Jesus himself declares this in the passage that we looked at a few minutes ago in Matthew 5. Look again at what he says. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Notice what he's saying here. Until everything is accomplished. See, Jesus wants us to continually remember that this story is, that we are in, it is absolutely real. And yet it is not finished. It is not finished. And what God invites us to do in the present is to see ourselves in his story. And to trust the God of the story. Knowing that our story is not yet complete. I love this book. I love this book. Even with its difficulties and challenging passages and confusing images, I love the Bible because it roots me in a story that gives my life meaning, that gives me hope for the future in the midst of suffering, and that reminds me that Jesus is with me in this story. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the Bible, which you love and trust. Thank you that everything in this sacred library of writings points to you. You are the center of the story and of our story. And we ask you to help us see the Bible in the context of this story and to let it stir our faith in you in the midst of difficulties and struggles, in the midst of our questions and doubts and confusion and grief. Would you help us approach the Bible, see the Bible the way you did when you were living on earth? 
And may it help normalize some of our confusion and may it help inspire hope in the midst of difficulty and grief and pain. Thank you that you are with us in this story and that the story's not over yet. Thank you, Lord. And I pray for hearts, the hearts of all of us, really, if there are parts of us that you want to stir and direct and point towards the scriptures in maybe a new way, that you would do that over the, today and the next, the weeks to come. So do your work in us. We love you, God. And I want to just take a moment. We're still kind of praying here wherever you're at in this, but I want to take a moment because I really feel like there may be some people hearing, watching this message, listening to this message and Jesus is inviting you to be a part of this story. See, Jesus died on a cross for us. He died in our place. He died to give us entrance into this amazing story, to partner with God in his purposes, to receive his forgiveness, and to actually have Jesus living in us through the presence of his spirit. And there may be some of you here watching, some of you watching this and you're thinking, I want that. I want to know Jesus in that way. I want Jesus to live in me. And I want to co-labor with God in seeing his kingdom, the love and the joy of his kingdom and the peace of his kingdom. I want to be co-laboring with him to, to see that happen in greater ways. And so if that's you, and you're not certain you have a relationship with him or you know you don't, but you want one, would you pray? Just take a moment right now, wherever you're at, you can just bow your head. Just close your eyes if you're able to do that. You don't have to bow your head or close your eyes if you're driving or something, but uh, we just want, I, I want to just give you an invitation here, a prayer, simple words to pray where you can ask Jesus to come into your heart and life. So just pray with me. In the silence of your heart, dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me, for my sin. And I choose to place my trust in you and receive all the life that you have to offer me. Forgive my sin and come live in me through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out and help me co-labor with you in bringing your glorious kingdom, your love and joy and peace to the people around me. Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. I pray that you would help them grow now in their relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. And God, I just wanna pray for our church for each person watching this in this season. Lord, we need you, this challenging season, we need you. Pray that you would help us look to you by faith, that we would trust you, we would lean on you, and that you would help us love well, help us have eyes to see needs around us and to move towards those needs to help our neighbors, to help people around us, Lord, just to be the church that you're calling us to be that we can get through this crisis together with your help and with each other's help. And so we thank you for the privilege of being a part of your church, being a part of this family. Help us just to fix our eyes on you and to love each other well in the midst of all of this. 
So now, God, as we transition into worship, we pray that we would be able to just engage however we, we want to do that, wherever we're at, but engage with you and fix our eyes upon you and celebrate the wonder of who you are and the story that you are still writing. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.